I'll meet you in Mark 4 if you have a, you got your phones or if you brought a hard copy or whatever you like to read along. I love text. We'll get into Mark 4 in a second. I want to just roll there with a, a thought tonight that um, when Jamie told me about our theme was rest, that's an obvious theme. I mean, look at where we are, resting. <laughs> Uh, that's pretty low-hanging fruit, but it's one of my favorite. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things to talk about. This this book that I brought, Greater Than Jonah, is a book we we put out just less than a year ago. Um, is a book in so many respects about rest and the lack thereof. Um, and so when when he mentioned rest, I've been kicking the idea around how to talk to you about it from a place of someone who's stepping into a season where it feels like rest is the opposite of what I'm doing. You're going full speed ahead to try and plant. You're trying to work. And, and I realize that's all of us. You're, you're working. And so resting feels like something you can only do on a vacation or something you can only do when you get the job accomplished. But yeah, I'm reminded that Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 3.1 that to everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Well, then Solomon goes on and says a bunch of stuff I don't want to preach. You know, there's a time to kill and a time to heal, and there's a time to make war and a time to make peace. And every time I read his list, I go, well, you could have dropped two or three of these, and it would have been a little more wholesome. Um, but I don't think Solomon's trying to actually list off all the things that it, there's a time to do. I, I think he's trying to list off the fact that there is a time in your life that then goes away. There's a season. It's like the leaf that changes on the tree. It's, it's the season for growth, and then there's the season when the leaf falls. And then there's the season when it comes back to life, and that those are not the same thing. And then it's easy to get lost in that, because it's easy to enjoy the past and the good times, and it's easy to look forward to the time that's coming and not realize that there's a season for each and everything. Well, I wish Solomon had said there's a time to rest and a time to refrain from resting. He doesn't. So I'm going to add that myself. Uh, and the reason for that is because I have found that there are seasons of rest. There are seasons that we enter into where rest comes easier. There are seasons where it feels like we can't rest. And I know we can spiritualize this and say that we always are at rest in Jesus and that we're always at rest in the Lord. And I get it. And hey, it's not wrong. It's, in fact, it needs to be said. We need to realize that we can rest from our attempts at being righteous. We can rest from our performance-based religious ideas about pleasing God and getting God to bless us and how are we going to build this if we don't do this. and All that stuff we can put to rest because Christ has finished the work. So yes, we need, we need the spiritualism of that. In fact, I don't think we can get enough of it. In, in religious environments of press and do, we need to be told to rest. But at the same time, we also realize that our life is cyclical. And there are seasons where there are, there are moments where we push the pedal a little bit more. Sure. Because it's time to. Because we've hit a straight stretch and we hear the voice of the Spirit saying, All right, take three steps, let's go. And then there's other times when you, it's, it's as if he stands in the way of Balaam with like the angel and says, you shouldn't pass here. And we know it and we hear him if we're listening. But hearing that and doing that requires us the discipline of learning how to listen. And I've found that grace people don't like the word work. Right. And grace people don't like the word discipline. So I'll use them both and just get them out of the way. Discipline is a work. 
But it doesn't mean that it's a work for my righteousness. It means it's a work out of my righteousness that I need to do. I need some form of discipline in my walk because without it, I can very easily forget what the sound of his voice is in the midst of a chaotic world. I can start to confuse it. I can, it'll sound very political. It'll sound very governmental. It'll sound very uh, militaristic. It'll sound authoritarian. And I'll, and I'll mask it in all kinds of scriptures and in all kinds of spiritualism and sometimes slide right into a camp I could have gotten in without Jesus. And so I hear a lot of things being preached that you could have come up with just watching the news. And you just tack a couple verses on it and tack some Christian ideas on it and people amen it and we feel like we went to church and heard truth because we've started to confuse truth with what we perceive to be real or what we perceive to be honest. Jesus doesn't come along concerned with being the real one or the honest one against a world full of liars, but being the truth, the absolute truth of who God is and what he looks like. And so I do believe there are seasons of rest, seasons to learn the voice of God, and I think it starts with silence. This is where the Father has been pulling me the last year, 18 months, probably more so than ever in my life and ministries, into the discipline of silence, into the discipline of refraining from speaking when I feel like maybe I have something to say. But learning how to stop that so that I can listen, so that the highest honor can be not the ability to recognize the earthquake or the fire, or the wind, because you don't need Jesus to recognize earthquakes, fire, and wind, but to hear the still small voice in a world that's obsessed with earthquakes, fires, and wind, and especially in a church world that's obsessed with earthquakes, fires, and wind, where if you don't bring the earthquake, the fire, and the wind, well, maybe you're not anointed. If you don't bring the earthquake, fire, and the wind, you won't grow, and in that environment, I don't want to be Elijah who can recognize the voice, but is still disappointed with it. Because Elijah's disappointed that all he got was the still small voice, because the next thing God says to him is, go find a man named Elisha and anoint him, because it belongs to a next generation. I don't want him to pass me by because I didn't learn the discipline of discerning the silent. Because I was so obsessed with the activity, the wall-to-wall sound that that my life is filled with. You know, this, day and night, and and the visual and the audio, every day and night until left to right, it's all sound. And and I notice we do it in church a lot, too, and we all do it. I mean, to where the silent space is almost offensive. Like, there's nothing scarier in church than dead air. (laughs) Really. It's like, if there's 15 seconds of transition between that song and that guy getting to the microphone, people start freaking out and get jittery like a bunch of crack addicts that don't know what to do next because the pastor's taking his time to walk across the platform. Why are we so scared of silence? Why does it scare us so much to sit in a space where maybe God speaks for the first time? 
in the still and the small and the way that, and it's still and it's small because it's still and it's small and it's not big and it, it's hard to find without the discipline of listening for it. Without the time that it takes to just every day, just a little bit. We're not reinstituting works for your salvation, but the discipline of work to sit silently with God and to just listen and to say, I don't know what prayer is, but I know what it's not. It's not me always talking. It's not me always making petition, me always putting things out there, figuring out which verse I should quote so that I can appropriate the goodness of God. But maybe it's just listening to say, what would you say to me? I want to talk to you about a kind of rest, the kind of rest that we all want. It's right there in the scripture. I want to talk to you about the kind of rest that nobody wants. It's right there in the scripture. I want to talk about the kind of rest we need to step away from. I know that one's a curveball. No one expects that one. The kind of rest we need to step away from because without understanding the discipline of who we are, we fall into a malaise. So in Mark chapter 4, I want to read a story about Jesus and his disciples and I hinted at this a moment ago in in our introduction. Beginning of verse 35, on the same day when evening had come, he said to his disciples, let's cross over to the other side. And when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I always like to say there's a rest that can be found in the Lord that will come across as apathy and a lack of concern. That's the sweet spot. Jesus is showing you the sweet spot of rest. The place where you're so relaxed in the word he's given you that you sleep through the chaotic storm of life and it actually comes across as if you don't, aren't smart enough to care. Right. Yeah. Because if the disciples will wake Jesus and say, don't you care that we're perishing? Right. Who are you? Right? I mean, they wake Jesus to say, don't you care? Jesus cares. And yet cares enough to go to sleep. So he rose, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And of course, we know the response Jesus gives. Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Notice that at the very beginning of the story is the key to the rest that Jesus wants to give. Come, let's go across to the other side. And the moment that Jesus tells you you're going across to the other side, how many of you know you're going to make it to the other side? So the second that Jesus says, let's go to the other side, Let's get in the boat because we're going to the other side. Jesus gets into the boat and as a sign of confidence that they're going to make it to the other side, goes into the stern of the ship, finds a pillow, falls asleep. The storm begins to rage and crash against the boat and Jesus stays asleep because Jesus has heard the father who told him. Remember, Jesus says in the gospel of John, whatever I hear my father say, that's what I say. Whatever I see my father do, that's what I do. So Jesus apparently this morning had a little time of silence with his father. And dad said, get in a boat, go to the other side of the sea. We're going to do great things. So Jesus shows up, says, let's get in a boat, go to the other side of the sea. We're going to do great things. Now, only Jesus heard this, but that's all that matters because they're disciples. They're following their leader. And so they get in the boat, but they forget 
to be disciples because they get in the boat and they should have followed their leader and grabbed pillows. He goes, by not grabbing pillows, here comes the storm, and instead of pillows, they grab pails, and everyone starts to pail out water out of the boat, and they wake Jesus and say, don't you care that, we're, that the storm is hit? Because obviously they believe in the storm a little more than they believe in the word they just heard, which was, we're going to go across the other side. So if you've heard, let's go to the other side, then no storm's enough to scare you. Jesus wakes up, rebukes the storm. I come up in circles that taught you how to rebuke storms. That's what we read. When we read Mark 4, it was get ready for storm rebuking class because you got a bunch of hell coming against you. We're going to show you how to take authority over it in the name of Jesus. Hey, listen, I don't get any problem with rebuking storms. If Jesus does it, sounds like it's a good thing to learn how to do. Some storms in your life you need to rebuke. But this is where the story takes a mild twist. Some story, storms in your life you can rebuke and they aren't going to buke. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a thing, but I heard somebody say that a long time ago and I thought, I'll use it. You rebuke it, it doesn't buke. In other words, you can stand there all day long and rebuke it and it isn't going anywhere. Why is that? You go, well, maybe it's because Jesus isn't the one rebuking it. If Jesus rebukes it, it goes somewhere. No, Jesus rebukes the storm. Obviously, it's not from his father. He's not going to fight against his dad. So whatever's hitting is a storm meant to attack the place of rest. Let's go across to the other side. You relax. Here comes a storm meant to rock your boat. Jesus is asleep because he knows where he's going. If you pulled that camera back 30,000 feet, you didn't know what time you were in. This is one of the things I love about being at the ocean. That sea has been coming into that shore the same exact way for millennium. It's incredible. It just, it blow, every time I see it, it just blows my mind. If you could take the houses and the buildings and the resorts away, and all you saw was that, you wouldn't know what year you were in. It's just always been doing that. It could be thousands of years before Christ. It's just been rushing in, out, in and out. Just this season, just churning over and over again. So I want you to do that. You pull the camera back to a boat on a sea. You don't know what year it is. And there's a storm lashing the boat. And there's a man inside the boat asleep. And everyone else is freaking out. Mark chapter 4 is not a new story in the Bible. It's a refurbished story in the Bible. Because from the 30,000 foot view, what you don't see is what made the storm happen and who the sleeper is. Because from that height, you might be mistaking the Mark 4 storm with the Jonah 1. Where Jonah is told by God to go to Nineveh, preach to a bunch of Gentiles. No one's ever done that before. This is risky. Jonah's an incredible glimpse at God sending his prophet to a Gentile nation. Jesus calls himself greater than Jonah. And there's a lot of reasons why Jesus is greater than Jonah, but one that can't be missed is that Jonah's the first to go to the Gentiles and Jesus is the first to do it successfully. And he's also the first to do it and not run. So Jonah's told to go to Nineveh and instead goes down and buys a ticket and goes down into a boat and goes down into the bottom and goes to sleep. There's three downs in Jonah 1. Down to Joppa. Down to the boat down because running from the silence, running from that moment where you hear from God, 
will never take you anywhere but down. Jonah finds himself in the boat, and here comes the storm. And Jonah's asleep. From 30,000 foot, it's the same storm. Same storm, same sleeper, same situation. But up close, we know better. Because in reality, the storm that is in Jonah's story is a storm of Jonah's devising. It's a storm he creates by running from the thing he's called to do. And those are storms it doesn't do you any good to rebuke. Because sometimes we are in the storm of our own consequence and the storm of our own chaos and the storm of our own problem. And we made it. And the best thing we can do is own it and pick up a pail and help people throw water over the side, which Jonah wakes up and does and tells them, I think I might be the problem. (laughs) To which the mariners grab Jonah and throw him overboard into the swimming mercy of God. Because there's not a greater image of the mercy of God than Jonah's whale. That God chases the boat with a whale of his devising and swallows up his prophet so that three days and three nights later he's supposed to be born anew to go take the gospel to the outsider, to the marginalized, to the forgotten, to the enemy. The greater than Jonah does go into a whale, into the darkness for three days and three nights, and comes out a brand new Adam. Jesus is greater than Jonah because the whale works. The whale called crucified, died, and buried, descended to the dead, and on the third day rose again. But our contrasting sleepers are really important because they give us an idea about what rest can look like in God and what rest can look like without Him. Because not all rest is equal. Rest that comes on the backside of let's go to the other side is a rest that comes because you've heard from God. Time spent alone with Him told you what to do. You heard the voice of the Father. No matter what storm hits your boat, we're going to make it. We're going to make it because God said, let's go to the other side. He's never let us down. If Jesus said, let's go to the other side, we're in pretty good hands. We're going to make it to the other side of the, sh- of, of the sea. But a storm that comes because God told me to do this and I didn't do it or because I have refused to follow the heartbeat of God because I'm doing things my way. Well, those are storms that can't be rebuked. They're storms that have to be lived through. And so, in essence, rest can really only truly for the believer be defined not as not doing anything. Rest is Holy Spirit-inspired activity. Which sometimes will be complete inactivity. Let me try to say that again. Rest is Holy Spirit-inspired or Holy Spirit-led activity. It's what He told me to do. And what He told me to do is go to the other side. All I have to do is get in the boat. How I get to the other side, I can go across to the other side freaking out. I can panic. Mm -hmm. I can sleep. The storms of this life are probably going to hit me because grace does not guarantee smooth sailing. Right? Right? You got, we all, pastors, you learned this early on in this journey that people are going to have problems and chaos and storms and the boat's going to rock and that preaching grace doesn't guarantee people are going to have easy existences. And if you started out of the gate preaching that, you had to do a lot of backtracking pretty quick. Once hell broke out. And you're rebuking hell everywhere and it ain't buking. (laughs) It ain't going anywhere because 
That's what happens. Sometimes storms just happen. Sometimes storms are of people's devising. Sometimes it's the Jonah storm. Sometimes it's chasing them, and if they had done what they were supposed to do, they wouldn't be in the spot that they're in. So what do we do? We extend the, ever, the never-ending mercy of God, and we pray grace chase them down, and we pray whales into their life to swallow them up and so that maybe it'll get them from point A to point B. And it's not going to be great, and you're going to come out smelling like whale vomit. And who wants to be covered in seaweed on their first day of missions work to Nineveh? But that's what Jonah gets. Because sometimes that's the only way to get to where we're going to go. Yeah. And so some of my journeys have been Jonah journeys. Yeah. I've done what I wanted to do. I turned when maybe I should have went straight. I stayed straight when I should have turned. Some of it my own desire. And so I've had storms of my own chaos and storms of my own problems chase me. The only way through them is to ride them in the belly of the whale. In other words, the only way through them is for Jonah to die. Because the beauty of the book of Jonah is that Jonah actually goes into the whale's belly to die. That's the point. Jonah thinks he's dead. He prays that in Jonah 2. Jonah 3, that he, he believes that he has died. And then he's vomited out the other side as an Old Testament version of resurrection. So the reality is, is the only way that I can get out of the storm that I didn't create is to die to something, die to that part of me that wants to be right, die to that part of me that is proud, die to that part of me. I know we don't, I know this isn't popular grace teaching because now you're listing out sins. And you know, we don't list out sins in grace, but the reality is, is that no, we don't list out sins so that you can avoid them in order to be righteous. But sometimes if you're in the middle of a storm and your name is Joni, you need to figure out which one got you there. Sometimes if you're Jonah and you're in the middle of something, you might inventory your life and go, I turned left, I probably shouldn't have turned left. What am I going to have to do in my walk to not make that turn next time? Because it's coming. I got the opportunity. I need to tweak my walk here so that I don't miss the boat on the next turn. So that I don't find myself rousing a sleeping Jesus in the boat going, what are you, what's, what's the problem? And so Jesus stands up, of course, rebukes the storm. But the mission for Christ is not to rebuke the storm. The mission for Christ is to teach you how to sleep through it. I wish back in those days when we were being taught how to rebuke storms, we had been taught if you would be at rest with Jesus in the boat, some of these storms cannot come nigh you. You'll learn how to sleep right through them. I found that a lot of times I'm only having to rebuke what I didn't rest through. I mean, that's what it's down to. I'm having to rebuke what I didn't find a place to lay my head next to Jesus and sleep out. And so I'm left with the rebuke. And if that's what I'm left with, that's okay. We got to, we got to deal with where we are. So that's a storm. That's a rest we want, Jesus. There's a rest we don't, Jonah. Who wants to? Who wants the diversion into the whale? No one. There's also if there's seasons then that means there's a season for rest, but then there's a season not to rest. So there's a season when rest is the wrong thing to do. There's a season when it's not time to lay down and see what happens in the next scene. There's, it's time for Holy Spirit-led activity. Because in reality, rest is Holy Spirit-led activity and also sometimes Holy Spirit-led inactivity. And so learning to follow the dictates and the wind of the Holy Spirit becomes the most important thing. So go to Gethsemane. I want to show you Jesus 
in a moment in Mark chapter 14. Same gospel. In Mark 14, and, and all the gospels, John doesn't give this whole, could you not tarry one hour? Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. I want to focus on Mark's, and then we're going to use a little something from Matthew's version of this. I might read a second here for slightly more than we need, okay? I know, I know everybody knows these stories, but that doesn't mean we don't read our Bibles. And so I'm just kind of that way, like, like I know we know the story, but sometimes we know it so much that we don't look at the text and go, hmm, I didn't see that before. Because I find that happening to me all the time. Like I, I've even found myself like, oh, I've been telling that story in the pulpit for 30 years. And then I'll read it and go, hmm, I don't think he said what I think he said. Important. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. They came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. I want you to just make a mental underline of the word hour right there. Jesus does not have a watch on. They don't have calendars the way you do. They're not marking time in 60-second, 60-minute intervals. So this word can't mean to him what it means to me. Okay? Keep that in mind. He's praying that the hour would pass, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I told you to underline hour. The reason is because biblical narrative like to repeat the words inside of the same narration so that the reader hears a familiar sound. It's not just rhyming, but it's to get you into the mindset. So Jesus comes back to his disciples and uses the same word on them he had just used with his father. Father, this is my hour. He comes back to Peter, James, and John and says, couldn't you tarry one hour? Now, I don't know about you, but early on in life and ministry, I got my hands on prayer books, and one of them in particular was called The Hour That Changes the World. And that book messed me up severely because it was a performance book on 60-minute prayer. How, if you really want to be anointed, you're going to have to learn to pray an hour. And you need to take an ink pen and a notebook and your Bible and a songbook and a bunch of other stuff into prayer. Twelve five-minute segments. Take a stopwatch. Five minutes of listening. Five minutes of writing down scripture. Five minutes of petitioning God. Five minutes of prayer. Now, it's funny to you, but it was hell to me. It'd be hell to you too if you try it. You're going to go home and implement that. Don't. Part of that's because someone read Jesus said, couldn't you tarry an hour? And thought, well, if Jesus said, couldn't you tarry an hour? Maybe we ought to tarry an hour. How many of you realize if you put God on the clock, one hour is going to be puny compared to the guy that's doing two? Wait till you meet the guy doing three. 
you're always going to be under condemnation because it's, it's a race against the clock. <laughs> yeah, pray without season, God's going to mess you all up. Yeah, wait till you see the guy don't leave his house. Just praise. So we're, we're always going to be in trouble. What I didn't realize was that Jesus is not calling me to 60 minutes of prayer. Jesus called me to pay attention to the season. To his father, he said, Father, the hour for which I came into the world, the season, the reason, the moment, the whole purpose that I'm here is right here. He goes back to Peter, James, and John. He goes, couldn't you pay attention to the season? Couldn't you watch in this moment? This was the moment to keep your eyes open. I didn't bring you out here to do anything but watch. Remember, that's how he opens the story. Just watch. Just be quiet and watch. Watch how I do it. And one of the things that they would learn if they watch is verse 39. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. Which means, if I'm understanding it right, that Jesus prays to his Father, Father, if there's another way to do this, I choose the other way. I don't want to do it this way. I know I'm putting a few words in his mouth. Go with me here, okay? I don't want to go die on a cross. That's how criminals die. I don't want to go die naked in, in public, hanging above the public square like a dog. I don't want to hang there and bleed and die that way. But if, if that's what I'm here for, if that's what this season is, then I'll do it. Goes back to his disciples and goes, watch for that. Comes back to the Father and says the exact same thing. Why? First of all, don't buy the lie that tells you that if you pray the same prayer twice, you didn't believe the first time. That's one of the most condemning things that keep people from prayer. They don't explore prayer because they, it's so heavy on their heart they want to talk to God about it again. But they've been taught that if you ask twice, you didn't believe the first time. And so they leave it alone. And Jesus goes into the garden and prays the exact same thing word for word. Because he didn't get the solution, the rest, and the answer he wanted the first time. Or the second time. Maybe the third How many times did he come back to the disciples and go, couldn't you tear it down? He comes back a second time, they're asleep. He comes back a third time, they're asleep. What Jesus is doing is making sure. Plain and simple. He's just making sure. He's making sure that he's here in the Father. If Jesus has to do it. Come on, man. If Jesus has to do it, why are we not making sure? Why are we not going back to God with the same prayer to say, Father, I'm back. It's the same prayer I prayed yesterday, but I'm going to do it again until I'm sure. When I'm sure is when I know I've heard the voice that said, let's go the other side. Because if I could get that voice, I could sleep through the chaos. Whatever's coming, I can do. I just got to know I'm in the right spot. You want to plant me here? Show me how that works. I'm not going to ask for anything else until you show me that. You want to do this here? I'm going to bring that to you every day. This is the beauty of learning the still small voice. You can have the fire. You can have the wind. You can have the earthquake. And you'll have the crowd with it. Or you can have the still small voice. And you can know it. And it might be down to you and three of your buddies at the end of the Garden of Gethsemane. That might be your whole ministry. But to know you've heard the voice of God, to know what it sounds like to encounter it. 
Here's one that blew my mind growing up. I only read the King James Version. Okay, I didn't read any other translation of the Bible probably till I was halfway through ministry. <laughs> like the other translations were of the devil. The King James was inspired by God. I don't know what was inspired by God for the 1610 years from the birth of Jesus until 1611. And it was 80 books. It was 80 books, yeah. The other 14 books we dropped about 150 years ago. That's another sermon. So I didn't read anything but the King James. Here's an interesting moment, the King James. In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells the story this way. And this always confused me. And most of your translation have changed this. So I'm not downing the translations. I'm saying that maybe Matthew didn't, maybe the King James got Matthew wrong. But man, it, it, it messed with my wheels. On the third time, Jesus comes back to his disciples in Matthew and says, Sleep on. The betrayer is at hand. It's time. Next verse. Rise up. Let's go. So I read that for years going, what is happening? Sleep on, rise up. Sleep on, rise up. How do you sleep on and rise up? And so for a long time, I just thought, well, there's probably a gap there. You know, Jesus goes sleep on, then he you know, goes and hangs out for an hour with the other disciples, has a snack, comes back and goes, okay, rise up. But I don't think so anymore. I think Jesus' definition of sleep is different than mine. I think right there, Jesus is so at rest with what he's about to do. He says, now, go ahead and sleep. Let's go from a state of sleep. Let's go. The betrayer's at hand. Now, Jesus warned that this is why it's important to discipline this moment to where we learn how to hear him. Jesus walks out of the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas walks up and kisses him and Jesus goes, friend? And they arrest him and Jesus says, you didn't bring swords and spears when I was with you in the temple. Why are you guys so scared of me now? Jesus is cool as a cucumber. It's unbelievable. The guy was just sweating great drops of blood, prayed three times the exact same prayer to the Father. If this isn't what you want me to do, tell me now. If this isn't what you want me to do, tell me now. He walks out, they bring a whole squad of soldiers against Jesus and he just looks at him. Peter sees a guy pull his sword and rips the sword out of its scabbard and swings at a man's head. He's not trying to cut Malchus's servant's ear off. He's trying to cut his head off. That's what you did. Nobody goes out and goes, I'm going to cut some ears. <laughs> Peter swings. Malchus ducks. There goes the ear. Jesus steps in front of the sword, puts his hand up. Peter, permit even this. If you live by this, you're going to die by this. He warned him three times last night. The tempter's coming around the corner. The tempter's coming around the corner. The tempter's coming around the corner. And three times, Peter chose rest instead of paying attention. And the tempter walks up with a sword and Peter loses the battle. This is a world swinging swords, man. More than, ever, more than most of our lifetimes, we're standing right up against the world ready to swing a sword. And the only thing we know to do is retaliate. Even in Christianity, we justify retaliation as if it's the most logical decision that could be made in the face of someone swinging the sword. It grieves my heart that we still, 2,000 years later, don't see Jesus with his hand up going, permit even this. 
Put the sword up, Peter. It's true powers, having it and knowing how not to use it. True meekness, having it, knowing how not to use it. True rest. True rest is my prayer for you. It's my prayer for me. It's what I'm looking for in this journey with the Father. What it means to hear the voice of Jesus and rest in the beauty of who he is. To understand that there are people coming at me with swords. There's a storm coming. See, storms look different. They're not always wind and waves. Sometimes they're the troops. Sometimes they're the enemy. Sometimes whatever. It's around the corner. These are prep times for our physical batteries. This is beautiful. We get to physically refresh in places like this. Thank God for it. We all need it. We don't get enough of it. We need to do more of it. We have to carve space in our lives, not just when we go away, not just when there's a conference, not just Sunday morning go to meeting. Much of Christianity has carved an hour to two hours of a Sunday as the space where they go to encounter God. I hope they can encounter him there. My prayer is that that sanctuary, they can encounter him there in that thin space between the sacred and the secular, at that spot where they feel him and sense him. I hope it happens everywhere. But I know that I need more. I know that I do. I know that I can't wait till I get with my friend. I can't wait till I get somebody else to pour something in me and then I'm charged. It's beautiful. I love it. I want it. Bring it on. But I know I don't always have it. I know it's three o'clock in the morning and I'm at the olive press and the troops are coming with swords. I know there's the Gatherings on the other side and I've been told to go. I know I've got a Nineveh to talk to. Rest. A time for rest. I believe in Jesus' economy. He says to his disciples, sleep on, let's go. Because in Jesus' economy, stepping forward in the Father's will is daily rest. Sleep on, rise up, let's go. I say to you, sleep on, but rise up, let's go. Sleep on, but rise up at the same time? Yes. Find that place in him of rest. Father, I thank you tonight for this wonderful group of people and for what I count the greatest privilege to say a few words to them, hopefully words of life. Father, I pray that we've shined a spotlight brightly on Jesus tonight in a way that not only shows that Jesus was human like us, but that Jesus walked in relationship with the same Father that we're in relationship with, and that in that relationship, He went back over and over and over again to His Father so that He could be at rest. Father, whatever it takes in us, teach us that to go back again and again to find rest in you. There's a season of rest coming for some who have been longing for it. I pray that maybe we've given a little key to help unlock that door. I pray that you will be the one who shows them how to use it. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.